today comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were, were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized. Oh, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would fill this place with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would take control of our mind and our affections, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us your word. We pray that the message from this text that was intended by the Apostle Paul um, would impact us and land on us in the way that Paul intended We pray that we would not easily write off the warnings that he is giving to the church in Corinth, but that we would take heed as well, that we would carefully examine our hearts, that we would look to Christ for salvation, for redemption, for sanctification. And so we pray, Lord God, teach us your word. Be with us now, in Christ's name, amen. Uh, One of the most well-known historical figures from church history is uh, John Wesley. Many of you know that name. You've heard it here and there. Some of you may know more about John Wesley than others, Uh, but he is uh, well-known. He's uh, famous for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is that he founded the Methodist Church in England. Um, Him and the the group that uh, met with him to study scripture and to pray regularly. He's also well known for authoring uh, numerous uh, well-known hymns. Of course, uh, one of his best known is, And Can It Be a Personal Favorite of Mine? Um, And so he's written many hymns. Uh, John Wesley just to give you a little bit of uh, background about him, was uh, raised in a devout Christian home. His father was an Anglican minister in the Anglican church. His mother was a devout Christian who uh, ministered uh, the word of God to uh, all of her 19 children. 
and uh, prayed over them daily and sought to be a living example of Christ to uh, all of their, their children. Uh, John Wesley uh, attended Oxford University, um, so he grew up in a Christian home, made a profession of faith at a young age. He attended Oxford University and eventually was uh, ordained, was ordained an Anglican uh, priest. That's what the title is given to Anglican ministers in the Anglican church. And so he was ordained an Anglican minister, and uh, he joined a society while at um, Oxford um, known, uh, they, they became known as the, as the Holy Club, and they were actually mockingly called that by uh, fellow students because they seemed so devoted uh, to the Christian life that many of their fellow students thought that they were a little, little overly zealous for all of this Christian uh, activities that they were engaged in. For example, being a part of this uh, holy society that was actually founded by his brother, Charles Wesley, and so they are related, Charles and John Wesley. Uh, but this, uh, this holy society that uh, John and Charles Wesley were a part of, the members uh, took vows to lead holy lives. They vowed to take communion weekly. They vowed to engage in daily prayer. They vowed to visit prisons regularly, and they vowed to spend at least three hours every afternoon studying the Bible. Now, how they found time to do all of their schoolwork while at Oxford University, I have no idea. But nonetheless, these were the vows that they took, and they were quite serious about all of the Christian things that they were engaged in, which were all good things. Praying daily, communion weekly, visiting the prisons, spending three hours every afternoon studying the Bible. After uh, graduating from Oxford and being ordained as an Anglican minister, he accepted a, a position to become a missionary uh, to Georgia. Uh, this would be in uh, the year 1735, so we're talking about the colony of Georgia. He accepts a calling to become a missionary there to a small church uh, missionary church plant in Georgia, and so he gets on a, he boards on a ship and begins to travel across the Atlantic uh, in the year 1735. While he is traveling to Georgia, his ship encounters a major storm in the, in the middle of the Atlantic. Now, bear in mind that uh, John Wesley is the, uh, the appointed chaplain for the ship as they are making their way across the Atlantic. And they hit this major storm and John becomes terrified. He is greatly afraid of the ship sinking and of dying. Yet, in the midst of this storm that is being tossed to and fro, he is also on board and traveling with a group of German Moravian missionaries who are on their way to the New World to become missionaries to Native American Indians and to try to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this group of Moravian missionaries are actually singing hymns in the midst of this storm. And it fascinated him. And so when the storm was over, Wesley approached one of them and said, how could this be? How, how is it 
that in the midst of this major storm, on the brink of disaster, the possibility of going down in the middle of the Atlantic, you were so calm and singing hymns. And the Moravian, one of the Moravians asked him one question, and he said, did he, that is Wesley, have faith in Christ? And Wesley said he did, but later reflected in his own journal, quote, I fear they were vain words. His missionary effort, as one would expect, was a failure, and a few years later, he returned to England. After speaking with another Moravian in England by the name of Peter Bowler, Wesley concluded that he lacked saving faith. This is John Wesley. Though he continued to try very hard to be good, he remained frustrated. He actually wrote in his journal, quote, I was indeed fighting continually, but not conquering. I fell and rose and fell again. But then on May 24th, 1738, he had an experience that would change everything about him. And he wrote this in his journal. He said, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society, which is what they called home Bible studies, a group of people gathering in a home, studying a scripture, praying together, singing together. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldergate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It's amazingly because here is a man. Here is a man who grew up in a Christian home, made a profession of faith at a young age, went to Oxford University, founded the Methodist Church, was a part of this holy club that engaged in many Christian activities, became a missionary to North America and actually served as a missionary for a few years, and it was not until he returned to England that he finally gets saved. The lesson that we learn from Wesley is that someone can look all polished on the outside. They can have all of the right background experience. They can say all of the right words and yet not be saved. Simply deceiving themselves and deceiving those around them. This is Paul's concern for the church in Corinth. He wants to remind them he wants to remind them here in this text, as he's been reminding them from the very beginning, honestly, that it's not about what you do. It's not about just checking off the boxes. It's not about just engaging in Christian activities because that's what John Wesley did for years. 
and yet he did not have saving faith by his own admissions. So in this text, Paul is going to now offer them an explanation of what he has been saying, particularly what he said in verses 24 to 27 of the, pre- the previous chapter. There he points out to them that ultimately it's not about the doing, but it's about pursuing Christ. It's about pursuing the prize. It's about desiring and chasing after Christ himself. And yes, that's going to look a certain way. There's going to be certain activities and actions and a transformation that comes along with that. But ultimately, it's not simply the activity. It's not just the work. It's not just the doing that counts. It's why you're doing it. See, that's what, that's what Wesley missed. He was doing all the right things, but he had the wrong motives in what he was doing. And so now in our text, Paul wants to draw from the history of Israel in order to drive home the lesson that he just gave them in the previous section. And you see that because he begins by saying four, right? The first word of verse one is four. In other words, he's explaining. First, he makes the statement, he gives a lesson, and then he says, here's why. Here's why I just said what I said in verses 24 to 27. And he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, first of all, I think it's worth noting, because I do think it's important, that Paul says, our fathers were all under the, our fathers. He's, he's referring to the patriarchs, right? We understand that. Yet Corinth is a predominantly Gentile church. But he says, our fathers, yours and mine, our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. His choice of words is being driven by Paul's theological understanding of the people slash church of God. Who are the people of God in the mind of Paul? Well, it's not just the Jews. It's not just Israelites. Paul talks about this very clearly Romans chapter 11, give you just a sample of where Paul is getting this from. Why does he say our fathers, he's talking to Gentiles, all were under the cloud of glory and all passed through the Red Sea. In Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 13, Paul says this, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So he's very clear who he's addressing, talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, referring to Jews. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Ethnic Jews were broken off from the people of God that Gentiles might be grafted in? Paul says in verse 20, that is true. That is true. Ethnic Jews broken off so that Gentiles can be grafted in. He says they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, don't presume upon the grace of God. That was the mistake that they made. We are the physical descendants of Abraham. We've been circumcised. It doesn't matter how we live or what we do. God's not going to reject us. Paul says they were broken off. Many Christians today think the same way. I said the prayer. I walked the aisle. I was baptized. It doesn't matter how I live. Once saved, always saved. It's always amazing to me how most Christians are one-point Calvinists. Once saved, always saved. Paul wants to remind the church in Corinth in this text by hearkening back to the lessons of Israel, our fathers, the patriarchs. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. There's always been one people of God, not Israel and the church but rather from Adam to the return of Christ, the one people of God have always been those who put their faith in the one true God of creation, the God of Genesis 1. The people of God, even before Abraham, before Noah, Enoch walked with God and was no more. How did that happen? He had faith in the one true God. He is a part of the people of God even before the nation of Israel ever existed. The one true people of God have always been those who place faith in God, in the word of God. Whatever God says, I believe it, and in the Messiah of God. Either the Messiah who would come or the Messiah who has come. We see examples of this even in the Old Testament where Gentiles are grafted into the people of God because of their faith. Probably the best examples are Rahab and Ruth. 
They weren't Israelites by birth. But they are in the genealogy of Christ, grafted in to the people of God because of their faith. And so Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. Clearly, the cloud that he's talking about is the cloud of glory. If you're familiar with your Old Testament story regarding the Exodus, when they come out of Egypt, by day they are led by a pillar of cloud, and by night they are led by a pillar of fire. So you've got the cloud of glory by day, the pillar of fire by night that leads them across the wilderness. In fact, it was the same cloud that stood between them and the Egyptians so that they had time to make it across the Red Sea. And Paul says, our fathers all participated in that. They all passed through the sea. What an amazing miracle to behold. This ocean is parted, and they didn't just slog across through muddy ground. The Bible tells us that they walked across on dry ground. God didn't just part the sea. He dried up the ground for them so that they could walk across between these two walls of water. What's amazing is that, of course, we know where Paul is going if you read the text, right? Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased with. Paul here is reminding them that they saw some amazing things. They, were, they participated in some amazing miracles, some amazing events. None of that mattered. Makes you wonder about Judas. Judas was there with Jesus, with all of the other disciples. Judas saw Jesus walk on water. He saw him multiply the bread and the fish. He saw him raise Lazarus back to life. He saw him speak to the wind and the rain and to calm the storm, to calm the sea. He witnessed all of that. Yet Judas clearly was not saved. I think there are people today who can make that mistake. They can mistake their experiences for salvation. They grow up in a Christian home watching Christian things happen, watching Christian things take place. Parents maybe having Bible studies there in the home, theological conversations around the table. They're there. They're a part of all of that. They could grow up in a Christian church watching God do some amazing things in that church, maybe even perform some miracles within that church. But yet being a part of these amazing experiences and watching God perform these amazing experiences does not equal salvation. That was the mistake that Israel made. They thought because they were a part of these things, they must be a part of the true people of God. It's the mistake that many Christians make today. It's interesting that he mentions this as the Corinthians prided themselves on miraculous gifts. He's going to get to that in chapter 14, right? 
They had all of these amazing gifts, gift of prophecy, gift of healing, gift of tongues. Probably not every person in the church had these gifts, but as a church, they had these gifts. So Paul was insightful in thinking that, look, just because you're a part of a church that has these gifts, where these things are being done, where maybe the gift of healing is actually happening, do not mistake being a part of an experience as actual salvation. Very shortly, when we get to the beginning of chapter 13, Paul is going to correct their delusion. And he's going to explain to them at the beginning of chapter 13 that in the end, what really matters most to God is love. It doesn't matter what kind of gifts you have. It doesn't matter what kind of talents you have. It doesn't matter what you're capable of doing or the kind of sacrifices you're willing to make. John Wesley made some amazing sacrifice. He left England, a developed nation, to become a missionary to a very rugged part of the world. Left his family, his friends. What a sacrifice. Sailing across the Atlantic was a risky thing to do. None of that equals salvation. So Paul will say, In verse 2, he'll continue on. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. It's not that they were brought into union with Moses when he says they were baptized into Moses. Rather, he is saying that in a way, in a way, they were baptized in the name of Moses. They identified with Moses as their leader as they passed through the Red Sea, as a form of baptism. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and in so doing, they were identifying with Moses as their leader. Paul uses similar language when talking about Christian baptism, which we were going to do today, but the weather did not cooperate. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How are we who died to sin still to live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is not saying that water baptism actually brings us into union with Christ. Only faith does that. Faith is what brings us into union with Christ. But when we are baptized with a water baptism, we are identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ. We are identifying with Christ as our leader. From here forward, I will follow Christ. So Paul says in a similar way, they were baptized into Moses. So it's interesting that he first touches on all of the miracles that the nation of Israel experienced, and now he touches on their trusting in baptism. Paul talked about that with the church in Corinth. If you remember at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 11 to 15, Paul says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. 
My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. It may be that some of these individuals were baptized by Peter, and maybe some of them were baptized by Apollos. And so they identify with those individuals. Those are my leaders. So first, Paul touches on the fact that Israel, the church in Corinth, trusting in the miraculous events that they've experienced, now it may be that they are trusting in their baptism in the belief that because they were baptized that they are now saved, they are part of the people of God. But when they do that, they make the error that Paul warns them against. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 and following, or I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, yes, Paul is talking about circumcision. He's using that as an example. But his point is this. If you're going to trust in any amount of work, whatever that work is, circumcision, baptism, walk in the aisle, church membership, whatever that work is, if you are trusting in any work, Paul says, you have fallen from grace. Because salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, or there is no salvation. You try to add any work to faith, and Paul says, you've fallen from grace. You are not saved. Paul goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. So now he's touching on the eating and the drinking, which he's already addressed in chapter 8. See, he's sort of echoing things that he's already touched on with the church in Corinth or that he's going to touch on, they seem to want to take their pride in the miracles and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the gifts that they have within the church. They seem to want to take pride in the fact that they identify with certain leaders within the church, maybe even were baptized by Apollos or Peter. There are some who seem to want to take pride in the fact that I'm a mature Christian. I can eat and drink whatever I want. That's an indication that I'm saved. Because I am a mature believer. He's reminding them in this section, in these two verses, that they should not trust in their supposed spiritual maturity as an indication of their salvation. Historically, of course, we know that he's talking about the manna that came down from heaven that God used to feed the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness and the water that he brought forth from the rock. If you remember, they come out of 
the wilderness. They are thirsty. God commands Moses to speak to a rock and to bring forth water from it. And they all witnessed this. They all ate. They all drank the same food, the manna from heaven. They all drank the same water that came out of the same rock. But then he goes on to say in verse, the second half of verse 4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What an interesting thing to say. The rock was Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul understands that ultimately, ultimately the rock that truly provided for them and sustained them in the wilderness was God. Right? It was God who brought water from the rock, but ultimately it was God who sustained them in every aspect, spiritually, physically. Paul is probably deriving his thoughts from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Let me just read you a few verses there. Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Song of Moses in verse 4, he writes, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, referring to God, right? His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. And then in verse 15, he says, but Jeshurun grew fat, which is a way of talking about Israel, and kicked and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Talking about God. God is the rock of their salvation. He refers to God as the rock in the wilderness who sustained them again in verse 18, again in verse 30, and again in verse 31. Ultimately, Paul understands that Jesus is God. Thus, Jesus is the rock who sustained them physically in the wilderness. What Paul means by that phrase, I think. But now here's where the punch comes in in verse 5. Nevertheless, he says, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. What an amazing statement. Nevertheless, with most of them, all that they went through, the deliverance out of Egypt, the parting through the, passing through the Red Sea, being, being led by the, the cloud of glory, being led by night by the pillar of fire and receiving the manna from heaven and the water from the rock, all that they experienced, most of them, with most of them, Paul says, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were cast down. They were scattered about in terms of their dead bodies strewn along. Of course, we know not all of them, not Moses or Joshua or Caleb were killed in the wilderness. All of those below the age of 20 obviously were not killed in the wilderness. But despite all that they experienced, most of them did not enter the promised land. Because appearance and experience can be deceiving. 
They appeared to be the people of God. They kept the law as best as they could. They followed all of the ceremonies. They kept all of the festivals. They, they kept the Passover meal every year. They went through all of these amazing experiences, and yet most of them, with most of them, Paul says, God was not pleased. The key to understanding what happens here, I think, is the parable of the sower from Matthew chapter 13. And I'm not going to read it all. Most of you are familiar with it. But there Jesus tells the parable of a sower, a farmer who goes out to sow seed. Some of the seed falls on the road, some falls in the rocky ground, some falls in the, among the thorns, and some falls in the good ground. The one that falls on the road, the birds snatch it up. The one that falls within the, uh, the thorns, they are choked out by the cares of the world. The, the seed that fell among the rocky soil, as soon as they start to sprout, the heat causes them to wither, and they are basically killed by the trials and the tribulations of this world but yet it is the seed that falls in the good soil that perseveres. And what is the difference? Well, in verse 8 of Matthew 13, Jesus says, Other seed fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then in verses 18 and following of that same chapter, he explains the parable to the disciples because they don't really understand it. So he explains it to them. And he says in verse 23, regarding, regarding the seed that fell into the good soil, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed, listen, bears much fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. That's the difference. The other seed never bore fruit. It started to grow. It gave the appearance of life. It looked like it was alive. But it never bore fruit. This is the fruit that John the Baptist talks about in Matthew chapter 3. It is the one thing that God desires from us, which is what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. There, a young lawyer comes to him and says, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? Essentially, what he's asking is, what is the one thing God desires of us, right? If we're only going to do one thing, what is the one thing that God wants to see in our life? And Jesus' response is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. That is what God desires most. That is the fruit that God is seeking. Now, that's not to say that works don't matter. Obviously, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So good works do matter, but understand we are saved by faith alone, but simply not by a faith that is alone. Genuine faith will manifest itself in a life lived for the glory of God because love not accompanied by obedience to God's word is nothing more than emotionalism. Yet obedience to God's word without love is legalism. 
both will send a person to hell. God wants obedience that is driven by love. If this concerns you, because some of you may be thinking, well, holy smokes, I mean, I'm John Wesley, the Israelites in the Old Testament, you know, how do I, what if this is me? How do I know? What do you do about it? First of all, pray that God will change the desires of your heart. Pray that God will give you a heart that desires to please him, to love him, and to glorify him in all that you do. Pray that God will enable you to see the beauty of Christ and to increase your love for Christ and then spend copious amounts of time meditating upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meditating upon the works of Christ on behalf of sinners. But above all, I would say pray, pray, and pray some more. But let's not deceive ourselves or waste our lives in the way that John Wesley did, at least up until the point where his conversion actually took place. Because it's not primarily about the doing, it's about loving God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for these words of exhortation from the Apostle Paul, and we pray that we would take this warning to heart, Lord God that we would examine our own lives, that we would examine our own soul and our own heart and ask ourselves, do we truly love God? Do we truly desire to be like Christ? Are we truly chasing after Christ every day to be like him in every way? Father, we pray that you would reveal to us our deepest and truest motives, Lord. And by your Holy Spirit, you would drive us toward the cross of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.